Welcome to Media Path. I am Louise Palanker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. We are here in your life as a podcasting service to provide you with viewing and reading recommendations and introduce you to noteworthy guests of great repute whose work promises to entertain and delight you. Today on the show, in person, we are joined by the stunningly amusing and stunningly stunning writer, author, humorist, Liz Astroff. More about her in just a bit, but she's here in person. She brought us cupcakes. Liz, would you like to introduce your cupcakes? Um, I brought a selection of Susie Cakes mm -hmm. cupcakes <laughs> that Bullseye. I stressed over mm. what kinds to pick Ooh. online. So what do we have here? Um, I think there are a few blues, a few pinks, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. a red velvet or two, but then I had this whole inner conflict over do people really like red velvet anymore? Or do and they just pretend to? Do I add a gluten-free? Do they have gluten-free? Because it's trendy. Because it's trendy, yeah. nut-free, we're nuts in the factory. Anyway, <laughs> all of this was not going to matter because I was going to eat it in the car. <laughs> yeah. If one bit of frosting touched my finger in the car, it was over. <laughs> but look how well you've done. I did well. Here they are. And your I cupcakes, put them in the trunk. They come with serving tips. Oh yeah, I know that Yes, and it tells you that it it's tells not you. an ice cream cake. Store at room temperature, never refrigerate. Mm -hmm. And then it breaks it down into types of cupcakes and what you should do in the event of. So like if it's buttercream cakes, you have to store and serve at room temperature. If it's right. snack cakes, you have to refrigerate until four hours prior to serving. If it's cheesecakes, you have to refrigerate until serving. I didn't know there'd be so much homework or studying involved with cupcakes. But and we're who's gonna... waiting four hours? We're just going to eat them. Like when the show's over, you guys. We're our just job is to eat, eat them like before our... the frosting melts under these lights. We'll do yeah. that. Well, let's yeah, see if we can I mean... beat them. It's like a contest. It's sort of like when you have that paper straw and it's like a contest between you and the coffee, like which is going to win. Are you oh. going to finish this coffee before your straw dies? You know. There's and... a pasta straw, like very beginning of like no plastics. Paradise Cove introduced a pasta straw, I'm in. but I didn't know that it was a pasta straw. But by the end of your soda, you're eating pasta, <laughs> so it's kind of great because it goes. It really went well with Diet Coke. I've never tried it. It sounds wonderful. I'm in. <laughs> so Fritz, what are you recommending for us this week? All right, it's another documentary. You know, that's my hobby. This yes. is the Automat. This is a documentary on Amazon Prime. It's kind of a narrow interest. It will only mean something to you if you spent any time in New York City or in Philadelphia. Automats are a very specific part of life there. Like standing over a subway exhaust grate to get warm in the winter. You have to be there to experience that. Mm -hmm. This movie is specifically about Horn and Hard Arts Automats. An Automat is a fast food restaurant where simple foods are served in vending machines. Not the vending machines that we know today. Not vending machines, you know, where you put in 75 cents and a machine regurgitates plastic wrapped shortbread cookies and you call that lunch. These are much more sophisticated. This was servings of fresh food that were presented in a little transparent compartment yes. that looked a little bit like the cribs in the NICU. You put it, <laughs> say, 40 cents. Poor little sandwich. The, the door oh, the feeding tube. would magically open and you take a piece of blueberry pie that was baked that morning 
at an undisclosed location. Not on site. They were delivering them all over town. But it was fresh and delicious. And they had piping hot entrees like meatloaf and cream spinach, just like mom makes. The first one of these food service systems was built in Berlin, Germany in 1895. Mr. Horn and Mr. Harder decided to bring the technology to the U.S. What is fascinating, beyond the streamlined food service, was how nice these restaurants actually were. They had Italian marble floors, marble tabletops, polished brass fixtures surrounded the cubby holes of food, gorgeous architecture, including dome ceilings, tables that seated four, and it wasn't out of the question that you just share a table with a stranger and be perfectly comfortable with it. The surroundings were tasteful enough to draw high-end clientele for business lunches and inexpensive enough for people on a strict budget. It had the feel of a natural history museum with a sophisticated (laughs) food court. Mel Brooks does a running commentary, which is hysterical. RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, talks about her favorite dish in the world was the cream spinach at the Automat. It's an interesting look at a bygone cultural era. And because I was born and raised in Philadelphia, I loved, I loved the movie. So have you been to, you went to an Automat when you were? Absolutely. Went to Horn and Hard because my aunt lived right down the street oh, from one. That was a big deal going yeah. there. Okay. Yeah. My no. parents would spend in excess of $1.50 on dinner. We just had Gleason's in Buffalo. Yeah, I remember Gleason's, Gleason's yeah. too. So um, I'm going to recommend Hallelujah, Leonard Cohn, A Journey, A Song. There's a lot of commas in the title, so I'll say it again. Hallelujah, Leonard Cohn, A Journey, A Song. The central character of this film is not Leonard Cohn so much as his song, Hallelujah. Examining the song's arc provides a lens which brings Leonard Cohn's life into sharper focus. Quite a lift because he was a uniquely curious and complex figure. Forever grappling with life, purpose, religion, society, philosophy, and the meaning of it all, Cohen begins his journey as a his adult journey as a poet and a novelist, casting off on a musical journey in his 30s, wrapping his poems in melodies that he begins performing in 60s folk club settings. Cohen grappled with his spiritual opus, Hallelujah, for eight years, writing some 150 draft versions, never quite satisfied that his words met the challenge of his triumphant melody. Which brings me to my central question. Why did Leonard Cohen write a song for someone who doesn't even care for music, does she? Maybe she worked for Warner Brothers Records because when he finally recorded Hallelujah in 1984, the entire album was rejected and it was not even released in the States. But the powerful little seed of a song took root in England, was recorded by John Cale, recognized as a classic by music insiders, covered by Jeff Beckley, included in the movie Shrek as the ultimate ogre lament, from where it blossomed (laughs) into the iconic masterpiece it has become, in equal parts prayerful, mysterious, reverent, soulful, and soaring. Hallelujah has been performed by hundreds of artists in a multitude of languages. You may have a favorite. Mine is from the Hope for Haiti TV event. It's Justin Timberlake with his Mickey Mouse Club mate, Matt Morris. Absolutely gorgeous. Check it out. Link provided in show notes. And if you are hungry to learn more about the darkly deep and mysterious Leonard Cohen, you can indulge yourself in a vast number of his books, albums, concerts, interviews, etc. Plus, so much has been studied and written about him for you to explore. I watched a 2019 documentary called Marianne and Leonard, Words of Love. This film takes you to the Greek island of Hydra in 1960, where Leonard Cohen, then a struggling and unknown fiction writer and poet, takes up with Marianne, a photographer and a single mother. Together, they become part of a community of expat artists, writers, and musicians finding inspiration in one another. It's here that Cohen mines his masterpiece, Hallelujah. People worship him like a religion. Yeah. 
and he fills these 10,000 seat venues. I don't think he's that great of a performer, but he's just a great writer. Well, he he surrounded himself with just layers and layers of harmonies and melody and great musicianship. You know, he kind of like has a Dylan-esque voice in that it's like not about, you know, his vocal prowess. It's more about his delivery and his heart. And that's, I think, and of course his lyrics are just, you know, mm-hmm. legend, so. I think I heard this song, I think I heard Hallelujah, not for the first time, but on American Idol. Yeah, and they show that in the movie, Liz. They show all these different people it's on amazing. the contestants singing it, and that's like, if you can- That's a closer song. If you bring that out and do well, oh, boom, yeah, it's yeah, over. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't even want to follow that. All right, so we're gonna, you know, you, you do not, no. You don't. So we're gonna introduce our guest. Liz Astroff is an award-winning executive producer and one of the most successful sitcom writers in television today. She has worked on The King of Queens, Raising Hope, Two Broke Girls, Whitney, Becker, Trial and Error. Does this get you exhausted listening? It's a lot. It's a lot. And many it more. feel old. No, no, no. No, just very accomplished. While she can rarely be seen at her kid's school, Liz is often seen driving by. <laughs> she has penned her inspired memoir, Stay at Work Mom, Marriage, Kids, and Other Disasters. Liz lives in California with her family, two dogs, a gecko, and at least three turtles. Liz, if you are too busy for your kids, how did you find the time to write your book? What happened was... And it would never have been, I would never think that I would write a book about being a mom because I don't really consider that part of my, you know, like when you describe me, mm-hmm. but um, persona. But what happened was I had a pilot while I was on Whitney. I'd written pilots every year and they never went anywhere. And um, I wanted to write something that was mine. And I had all these stories from when I was a kid that people were horrified by, but I saw the humor in them that was my way of dealing so I started I took a class at UCLA an extension class over hiatus so it wasn't like I was never around so this was homework this was homework and I loved it but then after the class finished I um, worked with an editor who um, helped me get it into shape for a to find I worked with an editor and then I found an agent and she sent me all these, you have to write a proposal, and the proposal has to be like 225 pages. It's crazy. Wow. So I wrote it over like two years. Mm. I wrote it. And I would write in my son's room at night in his rocking chair because he just can't sleep on his own. He's 15 now. And um, I would sit in a chair in his room and write. And so I was there, I just was, or in bed at night when everybody was sleeping, or in my car when everybody wasn't sleeping. But um, <laughs> but I would write them. But anyway, so I took this class and then got an agent, and she was asking me what the theme was, though, what the arc. And what I realized was, shockingly, that every essay pretty much went back to, started with the kind of mother I am in some way, but went back to my own mother and my own childhood so that was the bridging thing and then I was on the set at Two Broke Girls and Jennifer Coolidge was looking at pictures in my phone and she passed one of my family and she said oh my god you have such a beautiful family and I just flatly said I think I made a mistake and she loved that because everybody is always talking about how much they love their kids and how great it is and fulfilling. And she doesn't have kids. And it just made her day. <laughs> and I said that I don't, she said, I've never heard people say that before. So then that became the bent of the book, kind of, you know, it was yeah. like the things that you don't expect people to say. Um, 
that you're not supposed to say. But it is also written with... I, I also wrote it not realizing that they'll someday be able to read. Mm. Um, you didn't teach them to read. You haven't done well, that. Well, okay. I, I didn't. Don't make that mistake. No. I also... Yeah. I mean, I do everything wrong as a mother, mostly, mm-hmm. but I also show up for them, which is good or bad, constantly. I'm all over them. I, I want to tell you something, and this is not just because you brought cupcakes. <laughs> this is the funniest book I have ever read. Ever. And no, I th- ever. Honestly, honestly. No, it's true. It's and true. I think it's funny for one reason that you just mentioned, because I think you are brave enough to say your feelings of inadequacies about being a mom and a parent. And I think it reflects back on your really dicey relationship with your own mother. But also because even in the darkest moments of your childhood, when you're hiding under the bed from your mom, you twist the darkness into funny and that just makes it even funnier so Thank it you. is really an amusing yes. book and don't let the you know you know stay at home mom don't let the mom thing steer away men because you will right. see your wife in this because liz probably says things about her your wife's feelings that she doesn't have the guts mm. to say so it's really a i had a wonderful time reading thank it. you i i know i was worried about the, the original title was don't wait up confessions of a stay-at-work mom <laughs> and my brother coined me a stay-at-work mom just in passing in conversation and it really is very true and a lot of the book i was worried that it would only appeal to women but a lot of the book is about growing up watching 80s tv and being wanting to be sucked into their lives and then becoming a comedy writer to create that myself and also going to fat camp and being an overweight kid and being shamed and you know and there's a lot of there are a lot of stories about that stuff oh there's so much vulnerability your book is you know absolute genius i would place it on a shelf with angela's ashes and educated but you are also very frank about your flaws and i mean frank mccourt may have eaten cool whip in bed he took that secret (laughs) to his grave but was your honesty healing for you to just reveal you know what you see as like i mean you understand yourself enough to know that you weren't parented Right. And therefore, what you know, what what's your frame of reference? But you're still very, very frank, and I think the reader finds that gratifying. Did you find it gratifying to be that vulnerable? Yes, because first I would tell these stories, and my brother and I would always joke about being in a writer's room and just tossing off. So, how old were you when your mom kidnapped you, or what were you wearing <laughs> when you got sent to fat camp? It was so normal <laughs> to us, like that was. But also, people felt so sorry for me, and I didn't want them to. And I was like, I'm fine. I'm fine now. You know, and I would make a joke about it. And then because sometimes I would mention something and the whole room would go dark. And I was like, that was just a Why is that not funny? Why is everyone? Why is everyone crying? And then um, (laughs) and I didn't want people to feel sorry for me. But also when I so when I was writing them for homework for my class, I was it was so cathartic. And also some of the essays were really hard to write. And I also noticed when I was reading them in the Audible book, I would have physical reactions to some of them where my nose would start running. Or, oh. And also, if I was writing a certain one, I would be in a really bad mood that night, things like that. Like, it brought stuff back up for mm-hmm. me. Um, not in a productive way. Right. Because <laughs> it's all in the past. But it's not... It did... It, it definitely it definitely caused um, caused me to have different reactions to all of them. Yeah, but it still could have been ultimately a release. Yes, like a it cleansing. was a total cathartic release. I loved doing my homework. I was I did not hate it. And different than TV writing, I did not dread writing this at all. I didn't dread the homework. I would stay up till four in the morning writing. So you and your your childhood, right? 
I mean, really, Weezy brought up a good point. You had no template for parenting. I mean, you couldn't look to your mom or your dad right. to see behavior that you would like to mirror in your own children. Right. And then also you had your weight insecurities when oh, you sure. were here. So yes. was that the source of your humor? Was it this protective armor that you put on yourself or was it just For this sure. natural thing? No, I think it was make a joke before they make fun of you. Be mm -hmm. the funny one before they say anything about how fat you are. Always have candy in your locker and you'll be everyone's <laughs> friends. But it, people said such mean things to me in my town. We grew up in a very... Um, we grew up really in like a white supremacist... Um, blue cut like very anti-semitic homophobic racist town and we were the only jews and so um i would always i was always on my on the defense about mm. people thought i was an you alien. felt like an outsider and you were an and outsider. i were yes and people were when i invited friends to my bat mitzvah they didn't even know what they were you know and their parents were anti-semitic too so their parents, I think, were worried that I was going to steal from them or that it was crazy the way they would look. Now that I realize it, Kara Beach's mother was on me all Hate the time. Her. I know. Yeah. So it's weird. It's like it wasn't that. I mean, it was the 80s. So it wasn't people weren't that evolved in that way. You know, so so that was definitely I would always have like a joke first. So, yes. So your protective. brother Jeff is a, a talented screenwriter as yes, well. Yes, yes. But he had a slightly different relationship with the parents. He was a little closer to your mom than he was. Yes. And and you were a little closer, it seemed, to your dad, at least till the latter half of right. your life. Right, So where did his creative energy come from? Because he came from the same set of circumstances. Well, he witnessed all of it. My mother, I think a lot of it is from what we went through with my mother. And I don't know why I'm estranged from her, but I don't know why he speaks to her. Um and buys her bras and diapers. <laughs> I said she didn't buy you bras and diapers when you were a baby. Why do you owe her that? But yeah. I think because he's very religious and he's he's um, a very, um, what would you say, religious Jew, he feels more of like, more compelled to. I think it just means he's stealing from her. I hope so. There's like, nothing to steal. Weezy, I'm sorry. Let me just interject one thing because you brought it up. He's very religious. He's an Orthodox yes. Jew and very strict in practicing. Yes. It seems like a complete other part of your brain yes. from being a comedy writer. I think that he needed it as structure. I think he's always needed structure. We did not have any structure. He, um, while close with my mother, he was never really close with her. No one could be. But he was, I think he had tried ever since she spoiler alert, kidnapped me and left him home. <laughs> I think he's probably felt that he wanted her attention and she just, you know, she just never gave him enough. So, but the religion I think gave him, it was so chaotic in my house that I think the religion gave him rules and um, a structure and, and something that he could not, you know, thank, I'm glad that I didn't need that kind of structure because I love shrimp right. and I love TV on Saturdays and yeah. I don't, I'm not very disciplined. And I but, have, you know, I don't want to have to have twice as many cupboards or dishwashers. No, it's just a I lot. can barely use one. Yeah. I know. I just so, don't. Yeah. yeah. But I, you know, I felt like I felt the same way about, you know, why people maybe do that if they feel like that, you know, there's safety within boundaries yes. and that, you know, instead of having to grapple with every one of life's decisions, you know, you're told, you know, on, on Saturday, and you explain it really well in your in your book in that passage where you have to get to Jeff. And then you realize, you know, he's he's fine. He likes pressing pause 
and yes. this is what he needs every Saturday. He's yeah. not, he's off the grid, and this is what he needs to breathe and and right and um, and it's annoying for me. It, it's I so understand. annoying because I, I need do. to get in touch with him. Yeah, I have things that I want to talk about. You know, yeah, no, I, I know. Mean, I mean, I think maybe chalk art might help if you just went to the driveway. I don't think he could read it. You're not allowed to read chalk art. I used to go <laughs> there on Saturdays. What does it say Saturdays. in the Bible? It doesn't say anything. I, chalk, All right. I don't know if you could. Well, scripture. It's just a whole other world. Write it, you write it in Hebrew. Write it in Hebrew. Yes. Chalk art in Hebrew. Chalk art in Hebrew. Yeah. Go ahead, Brits. I just wondered if you ever worked on a show yes. with your brother, and that seems like a first. I, I can't think of two other siblings that wrote on the show together. Well, I for, we wrote one script together that was so much fun that didn't wind up going, but I have worked for him twice as a consultant, once on Trial and Error, his last show, and can now be seen on Amazon. Um, the two seasons, and then I did it again on Shining Vale this year because I was develop. I'm developing other stuff. I didn't want to go on a staff staff, so it worked for me. But what I realized the first day on Trial and Error is that I had told myself that I would work with him, but never for him, mm-hmm. <laughs> because we immediately regressed into that really smart valedictorian older brother and really fat. D student little sister immediately so it was just it was my eyes were immediately narrowed I was immediately mad he was rejecting everything I would say and then I would leave the room and he would say let's do that so it was very he refused to give me anything so a lot of times um, one of the writers said that it reminded him of Miss, Mrs. Maisel at our end of the table because eventually I would just be like shut up Jeff and it's his room and his show um Ultimately, it was really good. I also thought we would get to leave early on Fridays because he, I was I was like, this is great. I'll work Fridays. Yeah. But he would leave early on Fridays. Mm. So every Friday, he would get his stuff to go. And the minute I saw pink anything, in the winter, it was the best. I said, we'll work till like noon on Fridays. He would leave, but then the room would stay. So you're so, his Sabbath goys. Yes, okay. yes. But I would make sure he was gone and leave and then I remember being at a facial and getting a text from him saying keep everyone there till 7.30 and I was on my facial bed and I just wrote on my watch sure <laughs> I mean no so he really has it rigged I get it even if he weren't orthodox I would I should start saying I am because you know a lot of holidays in October oh, yeah and they lot. take off Christmas too and nobody says yes, anything yes nobody says anything but it is you know I, I think that it's it's we just don't talk about it and we talk about everything Mm -hmm. so um yeah and then the minute the sun goes down on saturday he starts like shooting off emails and texts as if everyone has been in hibernation since friday wow waiting for his waiting for his (laughs) he probably had you know he probably has them like loaded and locked oh yes yeah well if you go to a wedding or any kind of affair where there are orthodox jews and it's nighttime they will all be on their phones the entire time. Anywhere you see them, they're not present at all. They're on their phones because they have to fire off these emails that have been stewing. Mm. Their whole holiday is spent writing these emails in their heads in their about heads. how they've been wronged or what's not getting done or what should be done <laughs> as if nobody is thinking about any of this <laughs> during normal life. So it is kind of like he's working. So interesting. You cheat. can't turn your mind off, even though you can turn off exactly. every other you device. You can't even turn lights off. 
But you can't turn your mind right. off. You right, you can't. Exactly. So I'm sure he's trial In your book, you explain that your horrible childhood sharpened and fortified you to write for TV because it's just so hard to take all this scathing abuse. But you had a childhood full of that, which also made you funny. So to me, that's a heartbreaking epiphany. But um, I w- I'd love for you to tell our audience a little bit about what goes on. It seems like, you know, as long as, you know, someone can produce a good show, they can absolutely be vile to everybody. Is that still the case, that that culture, or is it acceptable to be as horrible to your to your team as what you've written in your book? Um, I think it's less acceptable, I would say, but I think it's less acceptable, but it's the fact that I worked on a few shows where it was just it, you were lucky to have the job and it was abusive and it's just the way it is because it paid for your house. And a lot of people had a score to settle from their childhoods or something and they took it out on the people beneath them or their own insecurities. But those people are still working. They're so mean. They're I mean, so mean. Like they enjoy it. But it it's was not. Like, yeah. So someone had said to me. This comic that worked on one of the shows with me had said, um, you know, I've been thinking about you in the Me Too stuff when that all started. I've been thinking about you a lot and I want to write an op-ed piece about you. And I said, don't tell anyone, but I've never been sexually harassed. I was so embarrassed. Yeah. And I said, thank you for thinking I have been. And then she said, no, the abuse at work. (laughs) And I said... Oh, the, the, she said the emotional part of it, you've been mo- emotionally, you've been, you know, abused. And I just thought, oh, well, why didn't anyone do anything about it? Because I always, so anyway, so she wanted to write this thing and I said, no, I'll write about it myself. But people started coming forward and saying that she was asking them for quotes about me in the room. And I just started, I did start to think, you know, we, it was kind of every man for himself, but. I like to think that I had other people's backs, but it really became like a lobster pot. It doesn't have to be like that. There are so many better ways to work, but it really was set up that that was okay. I think one of the great teachable moments with your daughter in the book Oh, yeah. Is when Phoebe asked you to look under the bed to make sure there were no monsters. Yeah. And somehow the conversation got twisted and you said, I work for a monster. <laughs> and you had to explain to her how that worked. And I thought, and later I know you regretted having yes. said that to her, but yes. I thought, no, you probably set her up for adult life pretty well, particularly as a woman in the workplace. That was funny. I hope so. I mean, I did think when everything, when I finally left, I did think I have a daughter, I have to, you know, I have to, I don't want her to take this kind of treatment and she never would, but also how can, what kind of example am I if I just sit here and get screamed and, you know, my my face screamed at. So, you know. It's just really hard to know what to do in those moments. I mean, I've certainly had abusive bosses and been humiliated. And the reason that, you know, people are talking is that it was a room full of people who yeah, heard it. it yeah. It's not like someone pulled you into their office and like chewed you out. It's like right. a, there's a bunch of people walking oh around God. telling yes. these stories because they all heard it. Yes. Has that changed yes. at all because of the new human resources stuff that's going on now? Yes. If one, I do think so, actually. I do think that if I, it's so hard because I haven't been, when I'm in my brother's room when on Shining Vale, he would go around and just say, everybody feel safe. Everybody feel safe. <laughs> everybody feel fine. Like you can't. But you just, you have to walk on eggshells. You have to be, and especially in a comedy room, if you can't joke, but there was a difference back then where 
people were so, especially men, were so disrespectful and, you know, we just took it because it was part of the job. But it's better now, I think. I would never do that when I ran my show. We made it. I mean, it was very kind and you don't have to get yelled at. Well, talk about safe in the terms of safe, safe. Yes. Talk about. Yes, yes, yes. Safe, safe in your life. Those are important words in your life, in your relationship with your brother. Explain that. I thought that was wonderful. When we were um, when we were little and um, left to our mom's care during the day before my dad would get home, he would my she would have her freakouts or breakdowns where she would come after us and start pulling our hair and scratching us and biting us and it usually was around the time that she was, should have been making dinner i think she really hated to cook <laughs> she was really so, hungry so she, she was, was really hungry biting you. yes and so yes so my brother would yell wherever i was in the house my brother would yell head for the bomb shelters so i would run and meet him under my bed and we would try to pull the phone under the bed to call my dad in manhattan and he would always bring home like donuts and pizza. Mm-hmm. So begins the like soothing. Anyway, mm-hmm. so my brother and I, if we had to leave to go to the bathroom or anywhere we went, really, we would always say, safe, 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 safe. So now, you know, I'll say something like, if we're getting on a flight, we'll say safe, 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 safe. Every time we're on the phone, when we get off, we just safe, 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 safe. And now we'll say, you know, um, Safe flight, even though the captain just announced that one of the engines blew. And then I'll write back, safe flight, even though the captain just, you have to say back exactly what the other one said to you. Aww. And um, yeah, we still mirror, are. Mirror that. Yeah, we yeah. always say safe, safe ever since we were four and and nine. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Mm. So sweet. Yeah. I so. think that, you know, having each other may have kept you both safe, safe. I got really sad yesterday about him dying. Jeff's, um, Jeff's not dying. No, he's not, but he will. So I always, I just told but him, you're I said, die I'm going to die ahead of your dog and I'm going to Jeff. I'm so. going to die first. Okay. No, that dog did pass away I and I was nowhere near a frying pan. And um, my husband was nowhere near, although he did bring it up later and he said, you know. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but then we had other dogs I had to stay alive for. You do. And you I don't want to want outlive anyone. Definitely no, not my brother. You're both going to be fine. We'll you're be both fine be for fine now. For a long, long time. So I wanted to um, mention to you that um, I've looked at the reviews um, on Amazon. So I, I thought you might, this might be an interesting conversation to have. So Amazon reviewer and verified purchaser Amy Gom wrote, such a fantastic look at how every parent feels all too often, but most wouldn't say out loud. Susie Glazer, verified purchaser, wrote, This book inspired me to look at life through a more humorous lens and offered a reminder that self-deprecation can go a long way to help one survive the trudges of parenthood. And since your writing is is so magical, the only negativity in review land is from people who can't relate to your feelings and, and how you process your experiences. And I believe that one of our greatest challenges as humans is for us to master empathy. How you feel is not how everyone is supposed to feel. Because you love indoor water, hotel, vacation, parks with your kids does not mean that everyone else does. And you may have been blessed with a greater tolerance for chlorine. So <laughs> one of one of the purposes of the book is for all of us to move beyond mom shaming. But I have never raised kids. So talk about that dy- dynamic from the front lines. It felt like in the reviews you could smell the mom shaming. Um 
me mom shamed? Oh, that, no, that just I was like being mom gen- shamed. Well, I don't know. I You got Lisa and Linda here, your moms. Like, do you feel like there's people in the school parking lot or well, like, well, that, you know, she's not really enjoying motherhood and, you know, or what have you about whether or not people go to work or yeah. whether or not people that stay home or like whatever someone else is doing is the wrong thing because what I'm doing has to be the right thing rather than there could be many right things for many different types of people. Yes. Oh. And and I don't want I want the book to appeal to other people besides moms or people with moms right. because it really is just about being an adult and being a child with no it, it with no boundaries, no just pure chaos and coming out of that mm. and how it informs your adult life. And mm-hmm. also about how TV so my brother became a TV writer first mm-hmm. because he's really smart and funny <laughs> and he could do any. I think I'm the I always say like I'm the only TV writer that couldn't have been a lawyer. There's nothing else I could have done. But I watched so much TV that it just bled into my brain and I would talk like TV characters because it was an escape. <laughs> so anybody who had is in a situation that they want to escape or have gone through childhood stuff and, you know, so but the mom thing it's so funny because one of my mom friends is this uber mom, always like she's the Girl Scout leader, everything, and she is doing some terrible things. <laughs> and her kids, she comes off as this amazing mother, but I know the truth, and I'm like, and I'm seen as a bad mother, and right. she is, it is bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is dangerous, it is amazing to listen to, but it's also, she's lauded as this, great great mother and she's doing it to assuage her own ego most of the time yes i'm sure that documentary yes. about getting into college did you see that called oh, oh my god right. did you watch that and, and it was so sad because all yeah. it was was parents trying to fulfill their yes. own that's exactly what it is fantasies about themselves so it's more like your children are a presentation rather than precisely and it was so right. sad so my thing also is that and to what i was inarticulately saying before is that you don't have to have having kids to make yourself feel better is so just you're just setting yourself up for so much disappointment Mm. we really only have ourselves and cupcakes (laughs) because and cupcakes because you know when i look at my kids sometimes i'm like i apologize to the universe for Mm. bringing these resource sucking animals (laughs) into the world so you can't count on your you cannot count on your kids to you know, to make a good difference or to be better than you were, anything like that. So these parents who are so braggy about their kids and so proud of them, and then they're doing things that are so bad. You have to give us at least one example. Come on. Um, With Uber mom. Affairs. Oh, um, okay. Affairs. Yeah, so hypocrisy is the big joke. Affairs. <laughs> Affairs in a minivan, which I think is amazing. Oh, wow. Amazing. Wow. I mean, such good material, but a lot of that. And also even like dangerous stuff like leaving your kids at home when to affairs. Oh, I see. <laughs> wow. She's but busy. I would never, and like drinking and stuff. And I guess I always say I don't judge that stuff, but I'm more annoyed by it because I get, you know, when COVID came out when they came out with covid that was <laughs> everybody thought that i was like the ozarks at my house that she has to be because i always put myself down and always say that i don't follow rules and stuff but people thought we were having parties we weren't doing anything we were by ourselves we weren't doing anything mm-hmm. and because i don't come off as as terrified all the time i wasn't cavalier in any way but 
Um, but yeah, but these other moms, affairs and drugs and driving on them is they're seen as this as these amazing, you know, safe, great parents. Right. Because they're, they're you know, somehow their their spin doctor has gotten to that that stuff that so that it just really and, looks glossy and wonderful. But and no. they raised their kids and realized that it's completely empty a lot of times. Mm-hmm. So they gave up jobs gave up careers, gave up jobs, gave everything up when their kids were little and cute. And then they are older and they're, I mean, they're gross, but having nothing to do with that, they don't need them as much anymore. So now what's their purpose? So a lot of people will, and I'm fascinated by that because I was always kind of judged for working, but thank God I have that. But I was going to say, you you were you were your title is with a wink yeah a stay at work mom because that was your it wasn't like you were just staying in your car in the Walmart parking lot till ten you could go home after your kids were in bed you were working all the time. and those sitcom writing jobs can be eighteen twenty hours a day if you're close to showtime right? right so it wasn't that you were avoiding those responsibilities that's just what the job entailed right. and your and and your husband Todd had to be patient under those circumstances and yes all that he was a obs- and a lot of times I am, I would be the only mom in yoga at like six o'clock. Everyone's 24 from UCLA or 22. And I'm, I'm doing yoga because I'm very, the oxygen mask theory is what I blame. But I have to be, so my daughter would say to me sometimes, she would say that her kids had, her friends had stay at home moms and they pick them up from school. And instead of saying, I miss you and I wish I could meet with you, instead of lying, I would just say, that's really nice. And I said, but I really like what I do. And it makes me a better mother because I don't want her to feel like, I don't think she's going to be a great mother. Either. <laughs> I don't want her to feel like she shouldn't have her own career or have her own anything. And also I don't want her, her to feel like I don't like what I do. Um, you're, you're actually representing to her what uh, 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 a modern female should be, which is self-sustaining. Right. I like what I do and I'm not apologizing for it. I think that's a, a healthy representation it, for your yeah. daughter. It's very hard though, especially during the pandemic, when they see me, when they're home and they see what I look like, they don't really believe that I work. They don't really, <laughs> I'm coloring to think. I'm, you know, I procrastinate as a writer constantly. So I'm on the Peloton or I'm going for a walk or I'm treading water in my pool at two o'clock in the afternoon. (laughs) And it's really hard for me to say, I'm working, leave me alone. But my husband had a job where he would be on Zooms all day and have the door closed. And I kept having to remind my kids that I'm just as important. But meanwhile, I'm in pajamas and I'm covered in like chocolate and cupcakes. (laughs) Mommy's paid to have thoughts. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Yeah, Your mom is funny. Right. Yeah, hello. Yes, I am. I'm funny. People think people other people take me seriously and think my I'm funny. Well, it's funny cuz my kids both have like their stuff like every other kid does. And I hope. And um my son, I'm not supposed to be sarcastic around my son and I'm not supposed to talk fast to my daughter. Oh, that's a lot of rules. So it's imprisonment because I talk really fast and I'm very sarcastic. So being sarcastic, my son was, he doesn't get sarcasm. So he always thought that I was going to kill myself or, you know, everything was burning down or, you know, he always, he really believes that. And then I have to shout in his face that I'm kidding. What if you could say something sarcastic, like, but with a certain hand signal that, that indicated sarcasm? 
like a smack. No, like like a <laughs> like a like an I will okay. Say, like it's okay. That's a good idea. Yeah. I will say. Um, I will say. I'm I'm being sarcastic. Don't you get sarcasm? But also, <laughs> but that's what I want to say. Like it, what I was trying to inarticulately again get to is that you don't need kids to make you. Um, a full adult, successful adult. You don't need kids to define you. You don't need, because I have a friend who didn't have kids and every time she's on the phone with me, she hangs up because it's loud and I get it. And I'll have her describe taking a nap to me like it's like porn. I'm like, okay, so you lie down. (laughs) You lie down on the couch or in your bed. I get right into bed. You get right into bed. Do you take your shoes off or do you act like you're like getting up and you fell? I take my shoes off and I get into bed. Are you working? Do you have like something like a school report, something you're, nope, I just put everything away. But the lights are on. No, it's dark. And I just, okay, so tell me what you, but what did you do when you first got home? So it's like constantly, there's always, the grass is always greener is what I'm saying. So um, I I was a divorced dad and I had joint custody with my children. So my favorite part of your book was the guilt trip because when you are a divorced dad and you over uh, accomplish every weekend. Yeah. Every weekend was a guilt trip. Of course. Was it the guilt? Yes. And I went to the Great Wolf Lodge. That I think was yours the one in Anaheim Garden Grove, or was it the one yes. in Arizona? Anaheim. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my. I God. had precisely the same experience <laughs> you did. The smell of chlorine, the bathing suit for my son's friend that we had to buy in the gift shop, the uh, oh warning about uh, cosmic diarrhea. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I, I almost fell out of bed reading that because it was just the perfect reflection of oh the experience I had down it's there. Terrible. One weekend is long enough. Oh my God. And then my friend abandoned me. My good mom friend abandoned me because her kid had like 103 fever. I was like, it'll burn it. Just put her in that room. It'll, it'll suck it right out. Put her in the, just put her near the chlorine. But every, every one of your stories comes with some little arc of you learning and growing. You're teaching, you know, Phoebe how to, how to jump on the, from the trampoline up to the platform or eventually learning to go down the water slide and just let's we're here let's just have some fun right so you, you're always open to learning or to uh kind of advancing yourself like you you have these kids and you love them and yeah. you repeat that yes over over and over in the book so the, i don't i don't question your your love for your children i just question you know why it is in nature that at the arc of your career is when you're at your childbearing years and the baby grows inside of us, the women. And then, then you're supposed to still be this person with all these interests and then have this biological thing happen to you. Right. It's, and you've pulled it off. So, I mean, I, I love how honest you are because I think it's helpful for women and i know i've seen them in in an entire audience on oprah i've seen them say you know saying that they don't like being a mom and that you know and oprah's giving them a chance to say it out loud for the first time right well i mean i think they like aspects of it but like it's relentless yeah it's relentless and children are loud Loud. people look at pictures of them and and they think they're quiet you know look at the picture they're just I know playing, you I know, crashing playing. a car with oh. a little boy. How I would always say my my car is lying down. Yeah, my car's having a <laughs> my conversation. My car's in the shop getting an oil change. Um, but yeah, that's the thing. And uh, work has given me such an outlet because I had to go to work, and I think that stay being a stay at home mom is so much harder. It's so hard. It's so hard. I mean, if and my I'm- car could fly, and then what I do now, which 
I don't know if I should even say, but they're not going to listen to this ever. They'll never hear um, <laughs> They, What I would tell them now is I'll say, do you remember when we used to do something on Fridays? I would, we'd go to Starbucks and then Mommy and me, and we really did. And then they would say no. And I would say, oh, we also used to go to the – I was home for th- your first three years. You don't remember that? Oh, this is no. revisionist history then. Yes, okay. completely. You could tell them anything. Sure. You don't remember when I used to take you to oh sorry, all I the time? Inter- I'm like relating so hard. Oh, I love it. Because <laughs> like my traumatic childhood led me to want to be a better mom. And I tried so hard to be like the good mom and do all these things with my son. And I'm like, don't you remember like all yeah. the birthday parties and yeah. all the fun we had? Yeah. He's like, no. No. <laughs> Yeah. I went to OT oh, right. with my son. I left Raising Hope to go um, and develop a show because I I found out that in his kindergarten, in his nursery school class, he was having like sensor. I know so much stuff that I never would have known, but he was having issues separating and he wouldn't touch the sand and he wouldn't. Mm-hmm. So he needed OT. And mm-hmm. I made sure that I was home to take him. And I, I did stuff like that. So I do show up all the time for them. Oh no, the whole How turtle story. Kids, Phoebe told and Jesse. Phoebe just turned 13 wow. and Jesse is 15, which is so weird to me mm-hmm. because they're not they're like they're still very we've made it so that they can do nothing on their own. Mm. <laughs> so, but right. I'm also my hands are tied. There are so many things I can't do because my parents did them. So, I have to basically I have to be a lot nicer. I have to scream things into drawers mm. is basically what it is. And my son has a lot of stuff and he needs a lot of extra care and he um and it's a challenge for me. Like the sensory stuff, he has ADD, ADHD, OCD, you know, all kinds of stuff and and doesn't well, get sarcasm. Is, he is Jewish. He's Jew- that's the thing. I think he has like genetic memory of the Holocaust. I think he was there. <laughs> he could. He could. He I could. think he's not over it. But and- like, how did you guys? How did you guys? Man, I mean, you do. You have a couple of essays at the end about about the pandemic. But with w- you being a stay at work mom, yeah. how did you make it through the pandemic? Oh, it was terrible. Yeah. First of all, it was supposed to be two weeks. I know. And it was. It was crazy. First of all, my second of all, my son, we bought them lock a locker from Amazon, like a real tall like locker locker, which we thought was really funny in the beginning, but then every day, every 45 minutes, I would just hear every single hour and shudder. And also they they need to eat a lot. And in the beginning, the lunches, it was cute. And then it just got terrible. And yeah, I had it was very hard. And also, I would disappear for hours and hours to go to yoga. That was part of my thinking time. And I would go to yoga in Santa Monica from the Valley, which is really stupid. And I would be gone for hours. But now I have to do yoga. I still do because my studio's closed. I have to do yoga in a corner in my bedroom. And my daughter coming in asking for money or like just covered in cheese dust. Like it's just, it was terrible. It's terrible. And even now, and then my husband's on his zoom. It was hard. Actually it was terrible. It was terrible. I had a pilot that became a show, but we had to shut down right before the pandemic and we shut down in the pandemic and then we didn't film it for another year. And when we did film it, I wanted them to come by the set so they could see that I actually did do something Mm -hmm. and they couldn't come by the set because of COVID. So they kind of drove by, but they had to drive such large perimeters that there was nothing there. (laughs) So they don't really, 
they don't um, get it. But it was I was so happy to get out of there that I and it, I was so grateful to have a pilot that it was in the depths of COVID and we had people with six foot poles um, keeping us apart and we were in hazmat suits and you know we had to be but it was still I wouldn't I loved every minute of it and I was vaccinated because I waited in line at Dodger Stadium for six hours one day oh oh god to get an extra one day when we're very old we're going to tell our first vaccination stories we'll be like in some nursing home going remember when we drove for 17 hours oh my god yeah well Okay. I I told you your 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 um, your childhood reminded me of a horror movie Aww. starring Nev Campbell, and uh, oh right right right, just because of all the darkness in your life, and no six year old girl should have to hide under her bed from her mother, and you did. But I, I but there are other aspects that really would make this a great horror movie. So I think after this book burns itself out and you become wildly successful with it. I think you should write a movie about it and then have Jimmy the Ventrilo- oh, uh, Ventrilo- the dummy. Jimmy the Ventriloquist <laughs> Dummy. I can show you a picture of Jimmy <laughs> I have on my phone. Please That's tell so me dark. about Jimmy the Ventriloquist Dummy. That was so dark. My mother had another child which was her ventriloquist dummy named Jimmy yeah. and he had eyes that opened and closed at will. Um, giant blue eyes and um, with big fluttering eyelids and we shared clothes I know that I know I wore his hand-me-downs but and he had a a one of those bandanas a red bandana and he had like he had plastic hair that came to a swirl he looked like Bob's big boy but like in a horror movie and my mother would always say that if you come live with me you can have Jimmy which was not a selling point. And then your, when, your mom actually did a, did a ventriloquist she, actor yes, in her life. She was terrible. So my mom, <laughs> my mom never finished anything. So that's also what drives me. What gets me like out of bed is that she never ever finished anything. And she was a terrible ventriloquist. She may as well just talked. And and she um so that was that was a part of her. But when I when I she did kidnap me, um and I ran under her bed, I was face to face with Jimmy. And um, at that point, I didn't care what happened to me. I was like, kill me, Jimmy, please, please. Get those lifeless arms around my neck. But I actually felt sorry for him because I was getting out and he wasn't. But it was the creepiest. Don't add a clown. That you know what I mean? Don't add a clown to a no. bad enough childhood. Well, so <laughs> describing what, that scene when you're under your bed and there are the eyes yes, staring, staring at me. His wow. and, yes, with staring his rosy cheeks uh, and yellow yeah. pallor. So has your mother been properly diagnosed so that you can kind of frame this around oh, she was on like a whole bunch of spectrums that are real ugly when aligned or intersecting. So because I, I mean you're reading it, and you're you're. It's your six-year-old memory, but the yeah. adult reading it is like this woman is mentally ill and crazy yeah. and dangerous yes. to children. She definitely. That's the thing is, I have a hard, when people blame mental illness because I certainly have enough of it. It's in our, you know, it's in our genes. But um, I think that she's bipolar, mm-hmm. and I think she is a borderline personality. I've diagnosed her from yeah, Joan Didion's what... book. Um, magical thinking but it's also but very mentally ill and unchecked and also mean yeah so it's not really an excuse like when people say people you know when there's a mass shooting and someone blames mental illness and says that's the real problem I think that's not that 
yes, mental illness is a giant problem, but you can't, it's not an excuse. So with Are her, both your parents still alive? Yes, my dad, and we're close. And, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm happy to hear that because I was saying you're so wildly successful, and I hope even with the dysfunction in your family, your parents appreciate what you've accomplished in your life and your brother as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Jeff was a done, like he was going to be very successful. I think I'm a big surprise. I think I'm a sleeper hit. <laughs> no, I, th I think that everybody knew what your potential was. But Jeff was in a position to facilitate that. Position. And it was a misogynistic time more so. Or, it, you know, it was definitely my dad definitely wanted me to meet someone who would take care of me. And when I would burp the Star Spangled Banner, he would be very worried that that was never going to happen. <laughs> But I mean, I, I, that is, that's a talent. It, well, I used to drink a lot of Diet Coke, but I don't yeah. anymore. So that, What was your Coke. first professional writing job? Um, it was on this show, Jesse, um, which was also the same producers as Friends. And what happened was um, I had gone through the Warner Brothers writing program and we were... We were told, my, I had a partner at the time, and we were told that we only got into the program because someone canceled. So every single day we were told that. But, so we got a job on the show, Jesse, and that was my first, our first writing job as a, as a team. I had a, a partner back then. Oh, I love the stories about your partner. That was uh, so interesting. Ironically, yeah. my partner is now my nephew's um, therapist is now my nephew's educational therapist. Oh. So my brother would hear her screaming in the house at her at his son and it was like this these memories of us writing together in his house. Oh. <laughs> Just like isn't that crazy in such a small world? I, I, but she found her calling. She never should she should have been that. I mean I think there's all kinds of really interesting intersections in life that you were mostly not aware of. You walk by the by someone on the street that you could have a, like a hundred friends in common, or that went to camp yeah. with you, or whatever. And like I was probably one of Jeff's first friends when he moved to L.A. Really? Yeah. Because he and Mike knew, he and Mike knew my my friend Melinda. Wait a minute, Melinda was my first friend in L.A. Melinda, <gasps> <gasps> we Mom. love you, Mal. We love you, Mal. We love you. So, and then Isn't when you funny? were describing like how much Jeff hated uh, hospitals, it's like I have this like blurry memory of opening my eyes from surgery and Jeff's there. Wow. So I don't know how he brought himself to that's, visit me. That's love. Yeah. That's love. It was mm -hmm. so sweet. That's so sweet. That's, are you sure it was him? How out of it were you? <laughs> I mean, maybe we could see if he has the same memory. <laughs> <laughs> that's really nice. He can't handle any kind of medical. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. So yeah. So, so you you <clears throat> as a sitcom writer had this odd experience that my other friends who do your job um, uh, have experienced, and that is writing a show for a comic. And you wrote yeah. for Tim Allen, and some of my friends have written for Roseanne, and that can be a double-edged sword on yes. many levels. Oh yeah, because they often think they're funnier than the material provided for them. Right, and it becomes really dicey to talk about that. It was, and also Kevin James, um, but Tim spent a lot of the time when I was there saying that he did not want to be doing this mm. and did not want to go back to TV. Kind of like you with parenting. And, yeah. Yes, exactly. Like, I don't know how this happened. I did not want to do this. And he was very grumpy. And if we would go, 
if we would go pitch something, everything that went by him, he had a tour bus as a um, dressing room. So we had to go on the magical misery bus and pitch it to him. But he felt like, he would always say, like, I would never do that. I'm a 65-year-old man. Why would I do that? If my wife wants me to go to a party, I'm just not going to go. And we would say, but your character... It's a different person. So it wasn't as much that he was trying to be funny. <laughs> he just didn't want to be there, but then contrarian, did. Contrarian. Always contrarian. Always yeah. a contrarian, yes. And then so <laughs> and then the show went on forever. So I mean it really did go on a long time. I was only there that first that first year was terrible. But it was it was um and then with Kevin, he would um if he was feeling really bad about himself, he would say um, we couldn't put fat jokes in the script. And then if the show was bombing with the audience, he would come over to the podium and say, I need fat jokes. And I would say, I have a hundred. So let's get started. <laughs> but he didn't like it when other comics got laughs. He would shut everything down. Yeah, see, that's the... Wow. Everyone yeah. has their... Yeah. Whatever, their weakness, let's yes. let's just call it. All right, what are you working on now? Because we're going to wrap this up because okay. it's Thanksgiving week, and I don't want to spend all day Thanksgiving editing this show. As we good have, as it is. We have cupcakes to eat. Let's wrap and we have cupcakes. So you're on Twitter. You're on Instagram. I'm on Instagram mostly. And folks can find you, and they can absolutely read your book. Yes. And what are, what are you working on now? So now I'm working on, I'm waiting to hear about a pilot at ABC that I should be hearing about any day. And I am also going to be adapting this book into a show yes that um with flashbacks to my childhood that kind of explain my behavior now a one-person show no it would be like it would be a cast of characters my brother and i are the main relationship and then the kids and and then going back i think that what i would like to do is have the portal to the flashbacks be um my my 13 year old self stuck in a bat mitzvah dress in a mirror that's my inner voice and so that's how we get back to those those times so that's what um that's that's what i'm working on too and i just incidentally a mirror plays a very pivotal role in your thing as a matter of fact that was such a touching runner that you had in there talking about all the things that your mirror had seen you do in your life all the way up through the molly ringwald runner Um, it was really sweet and every kid had that same experience with their mirror anyway yeah and it was it's so crazy that that mirror followed me so i see the opening shot of the show me please starts in a mirror and then pulls back (laughs) because that's never happened in a movie (laughs) (laughs) my husband is mad because not mad but i describe him in the book as um having slightly above average good looks, which I think is really nice. And the reason I said slightly is because if I said good looks, then it would mean that I could have a husband that had good looks. Oh, looks. Oh, so I was you like, can't, you, you can't I said I was really putting myself down. And by the way, that's not bad. I didn't say slightly below average. I'm going to say this. Your relationship with your husband is adorable. It is. It is. I love the way he just kind of flows with, with me. you. Yeah. No, he doesn't put up. He Thank just, you. He doesn't. It's a natural rhythm to him. One time you texted him and said, I'm going to kill myself. And he said, I'll help yes. you. Yes. We do joke like that. He does. He must have a great sense of humor. He has such a, when he gets to talk, he is very, <laughs> on my show Pivoting, um, 
that I just had on Fox, the husband, um, Tommy Dewey's character, was very much modeled after my husband, and I used stories. I didn't even have to make anything up because all of these stories actually happened with my husband. Um, So cute. But one thing that happened the other day, I'll just tell you quickly, is I write at the Coral Tree a lot in Encino, and I was there, and I found out I had a Zoom with ABC to get notes at 6 o'clock, and it was 5 o'clock, and I needed to get home, and I was frantic, and my keys were gone. So... I had no idea. It was like a fever dream where my keys were like no one had seen them and they know me there. I lose everything. No one had seen them. They weren't anywhere. So I had to ask my husband to unlock my car from where he was and he unlocked it and I had to take the zoom in the dark. Um, And all of a sudden I see a flashlight going around my car and it was my husband looking on the ground for the keys and um, he didn't find them. But he went into Coral Tree and I was like watching kind of while I was on the Zoom. And then he came out a few minutes later. He opened the door and he goes, they were in the ladies room bathroom. Gar- they were in the ladies room garbage and throws them to me and said, I'll see you at home. Uh, and I was like, thanks, Todd. Like just. And then the people on the Zoom are like, this happens. <laughs> and I said, so on a daily it basis. It doesn't even. It feels like you were trying to lose them like they were a murder weapon. <laughs> I know. In the garbage, in the ladies room. But how careless that I just threw them out. I know. But he knows. He's like, what would Keys do if they were Liz's? Oh, let me look I know. In. He tracks me, though. He has, like, I have a tile, I have an air tag, and then I'll say, you're tracking me? You've been chipped. And he's like, I have to, you know. Bless his heart. I know. All yes. right. With love to Todd, we're going to read the closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where our show page is Media Path Podcast, and our Facebook group is Media Path with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. You can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts and talk about us favorably to your friends on social media. You can sign up for our fun and dishy newsletter at MediaPathPodcast.com. And we want to thank our wonderful guest, Liz Astroff, here in person. She brought cupcakes. Please, please buy Stay at Work Mom for some an adult you love for Christmas. Yes. It will just be the salve you need for the holidays. But not an adult who knows her children because they're not supposed to read it. Our team includes Mm -hmm. Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filippiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Garrett Arch, and you. Thank you to our in-studio audience, Lisa Arch and Linda Brown, the great Linda Brown. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Planker, here with Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path. It's so much fun. I love it. By the way, thank you. By the way, the, um, I, that's so funny that you know Ron.